2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 13. We're going to read 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 3, 5. Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, as we come now to this text and as we are reminded of, of your greatness, God, of your, of your comfort, of your mercy, of your steadfast love for us, God, help us to, to see, uh, to not just see, but to believe, to embrace these truths, to, to respond accordingly to what you have done, God, and to be changed by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is that time of year again. There are two things that are really beginning to ramp up. The first one is football season, right? Football is kicking off and all across, right, at all different levels. Just coach the boys, uh, flag football. On Saturday morning, uh, high school football is gone. College football has been going for a few weeks now. And the NFL kicks off today, right? And the other thing is the election season. And these two things, uh, football and, and politics, right, they kind of highlight a couple things that are very common to the human experience. That is opposition and adversarial relationships, now, in football, the opposition is pretty obvious, isn't you? One team plays another team, and they call that other team their opponent, right? There's opposition because they're trying to beat that team on the field. But it's not just about the teams that are playing, right? It goes farther than that. It goes to the fan bases. Uh, Packers fans versus Vikings fans today, especially. Uh, Packers fans versus Bears fans all the time, right? And it can all be in fun, but it can be truly adversarial, right? You've probably seen highlights of maybe fist fights like happening in the stadium. I just saw something from a college game a couple of weeks ago where guys are like duking it out, like in the stands, like people get in fights outside of the stadium. So there are truly like adversarial relationships that are caused by these fan bases being against each other. In politics, we see it obviously with different candidates, right? Candidates going up against each other, parties against each other. 
it's that time now or if you got the radio on or you got the TV on, we're seeing, starting to see the ads ramping up. And these ads are very adversarial. Uh, we're in a time where as soon as you hear the name of a candidate in the beginning of the ad, you're pretty sure that the ad isn't telling you to vote for that candidate, right? It's, it's trying to smear a person and say all the horrible things that they have done and why you shouldn't vote for them. So it just has a very adversarial nature to it. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? If we believe in God's word, if we believe what he has told us from the beginning about the human condition, then all of this is really just par for the course, right? We see it right away in the fall. We see opposition to God and what he commands. Chris talked about it with the kids in our catechism question. Sin is any lack of conformity to, to God and um, any, I, I got the adult version in my head. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism 14 is basically the same language. It has a few different words, but that we looked at that, right? That sin, that's what it is. It's a lack of conformity. It's not doing what God says, and it's transgressing, transgressing the law of God. It's not doing what he says, and it's doing what he says not to do. So, right, we have that kind of that twofold element there. And we talk about, when we talk about sin, we talk about theologically, we, we might call this total depravity, the effects of the fall that we as fallen people are totally depraved. Now, when we hear that, sometimes we think, people might think we're saying, oh, that you're always going to do the worst possible thing at every possible moment. And that's not actually what total depravity means. It doesn't mean that you're always going to do the, the worst case scenario thing, but it means that you can't not sin, right? Like everything that you do, every decision that you make is tainted by your sinful nature. And you're going to be tempted to want to do what is wrong, to want to go against God. So the reality is that sin impacts and, and it affects everything that we do. Now, this has a vertical element to it, right? It impacts our relationship with God as we're, we're ultimately sinning against him, but it also has a horizontal impact that impacts our, our human relationship. So we have this adversarial relationship with God and we have this adversarial relationship with those around us. And again, we see it right there in the Genesis account, don't we? we? We see it with Adam and Eve being opposed to each other. So it starts with husbands and wives in that most intimate human relationship. There is sin. There is an adversarial element in Genesis 316. Um, Eve was told that your desire shall be contrary to your husband. So right from the beginning, part of the curse of the fall is this, is this contrary opposed relationship. We see that play out with parents and children. We see it in the relationship between bosses and employees. We see it in neighbor relationships, right? Whether it's just an immediate uh, relationship with your, your next door neighbor, uh, there's adversarial things that happen. We might see it from city to city, like two cities that might be going at it. And we see it in countries, right? Obviously, we're reminded of that on a day like today, the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. We're very much reminded that this world is built on opposition, conflict, and adversarial relationships. Now, the Bible lays out instructions and warnings regarding all of these relationships. Some of the ones I mentioned earlier, husbands and wives, parents and children, boss and employees. We see those Paul very clearly addressed those in Ephesians 5 and 6. 
And then the neighborly ones, the love of neighbor, we see that all throughout the Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. There's commands over and over about how to love your neighbor and how to, how to serve, how to lay down your life. But because of sin and because humanity is unwilling to submit to God's ways, history is littered with the tragic results of this opposition that we see to God and to one another. These adversarial relationships between people and nations, these are the things that make up history books, right? This is what makes history kind of exciting and interesting. We wouldn't, like, history wouldn't really be fun to study if it was just like, oh, well, since the creation, everyone just got along. Like, we, nobody wants to read that book, right? Like, we want to read, we want to see, like, oh, how did, the, you know, how did these people go against these people and who won this war? I mean, it's unfortunate, right? But that's the thing that kind of draws us in. Those are the details that, that we really enjoy. But thankfully, there is another side of the coin. There is an alternative, and that's what we long for in every good story. And God doesn't disappoint us. His story is the story that all of these other good stories attempt to model themselves after, right? The alternative to the bad stories is, is the movies that are trying to have a good ending, right? Trying to have a hero. Well, all of those stories are modeled after God's story of redemption, aren't they? Those people aren't just coming up with some grand idea of how things should turn out in the end on their own. God has already shown us this true story. And despite the sin and the brokenness that we have brought upon ourselves, despite our opposition to God and his ways, despite our adversarial relationship to him vertically, God has graciously intervened. So what is the opposite then of adversity? It is peace and reconciliation, isn't it? There is never only bad news in the story. Genesis 3.16, which I just mentioned, where Eve's desire will be contrary to her husband, that is bad news, right? We see the effects of that to this day. I look around and I see every married couple nodding their heads like, yep, we know that this is true. This is the effects of the fall. But just before that is the glimmer of the good news in the midst of the tragedy of the fall. That is Genesis 3.16. In Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent that he will put enmity between Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring. Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's head. This is good news very early on in the Bible. In the, only in the third chapter, just after the fall into sin, God gives this promise that Eve's offspring will crush the serpent's head. And we fast forward all the way to Romans. Paul concludes his letter to the Romans. In Romans 16, 20, he says, the God of peace, notice that there, right? The God of peace, the opposite of adversity, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, okay? Now, there's adversity in that, right? Satan is going to be crushed, but it's the God of peace who's going to overcome, and through that adversity, right, he's going to crush Satan under their feet. Now, again, we have to remember, as, we've, as we talk about a lot around here, the already and the not yet. Jesus did already crush Satan under his feet at the cross. He brought about our redemption and our reconciliation with God and with others. You can go read Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, look at that, verses 1 through 10, the first half of the chapter, talking about our reconciliation and, and redemption, how we've been reconciled with God. And then that second Half of the chapter talks about how that plays out in our human relationships, right? That we're reconciled uh, to others. And that, so that is the already reality. Those things have happened. 
But that doesn't mean that sin has been eradicated once and for all. We still live in this fallen world where we face the not yet reality that, that sin still reigns, right? We still oppose God and his commands. We still sin against one another. Again, even in these closest relationships, the marriage relationship, family relationships, where we don't desire to hurt those we love, we still fall into our sinful patterns and we hurt one another. And we still long for the full and final redemption when Satan and sin and death are fully and finally defeated. So there is that not yet element. But in the meantime, as we wait, we need constant reminders of who God is and of what he has done for us. That's why God has given us his spirit and he's given us his word. We're not left to just figure these things out on our own. We're not left to live the Christian life on our own power. Paul has been very concerned with communicating these truths to the Christians in Thessalonica. And God, by his spirit and his word, he desires that we might receive and embrace these same truths right here, right now, in 2022 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Now, the title of the message this morning is Living in Light of Certain Victory. Living in Light of Certain Victory. And again, we, when we think about that phrase, certain victory, I think we have to think about it in the terms of the already and the not yet. We have to look back, right? We have to look back to the cross, so what Jesus has already done, and say our victory is certain, but we are still in the midst of this battle. We are fighting in a war that the end has already been determined, right? The, the victory at the end is certain, but that's still the not yet. So we, we are kind of in this weird in-between where we have to stand firm on what Christ has already done, but say, but, right? But we're still waiting. We're still longing. We're still needing to hold firm and hold fast. So the main question that I want us to consider this morning is what do we need to know, right? Intellectually, what do we need to know in our heads? What do we need to believe in our hearts? And what, we need, what do we need to do with our hands so that we can face opposition as we wait expectantly for Jesus' return? So what do we need to know, believe, and do so that we can face opposition as we wait expectantly for Jesus' return. So if you weren't here last week, uh, James preached from chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which really highlights the reality of the opposition and the deception that was going on in the uh, church in Thessalonica regarding the return of Jesus. Uh, and, and in spite of all of that, followers of Jesus are encouraged not to be afraid. And we are promised, if you look back at verse 8, we are promised that the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this is a great promise of what Jesus will do. So in the midst of all this deception, all this opposition, we are promised that Jesus will kill this lawless one with the breath of his mouth when he comes. And then we see the fate of those who follow Satan and his deception. That's spelled out very clearly in verses 10 through 12 of chapter two. Now, Paul, he doesn't pull any punches here. He speaks very clearly about what's going to happen uh, to those who are perishing, to those who refuse uh, to love the truth and be saved. God will send them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this is a very stark reality of, of what will happen for those who do not trust in Christ. But notice what Paul does here in verse 13. Notice how he turns the corner very quickly here in order to encourage his readers that their fate 
is different from the fate of those he has just mentioned. He starts off here, but, okay, he has just said, here's, here's the reality for all those who reject Christ, all those who, who have been deceived and who are, are walking in their own ways, this is what's going to happen to them. Then he says, but, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 3, he's, he uses the exact same language here as he gives thanks for them. In verse th 1, 3, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. But notice the difference of why he is thanking God here compared to 1, 3. Look at 1, 3 again. He says, we ought to give thanks as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul says, we give thanks to you, Christians in Thessalonica, because you're doing what you've been told to do, right? You've, you're, you're loving one another. Your faith is growing. You're trusting God. Good job, right? So he, he, he thanks God for what they are doing. But what is the reason here in beginning in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 13? Here, it's all about what God has done for them. Look at what it says here. Even the word um, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, he just calls them brothers. Here he says, brothers beloved by the Lord. Okay? It doesn't say those who love God. It says those who are loved by God. Right? So he, he turns here from focusing on what they did to what God has done for them. Because God chose you as first fruit. So this could be translated from the beginning. God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. Again, God is at work in them. God chose them. God put his Spirit within them. Verse 14, to this he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So back to our main question here. What do we need to know and believe and do so that we can face opposition as we wait expectantly for Jesus' return. Again, Paul tells us, I love what he does here. He sandwiches the do part in verse 15, right in the middle of these incredible things that we must know and believe about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ and who we are as a result. So again, we had all these things here in Verses 13 and 14 that God has done, he has, he has loved us, he has chosen us, he has called us, he has put his spirit within us. And then in 16, this benediction that he, that he prays that God would, the God who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, that he would comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So again, there's this focus in 13 and 14 and 16 and 17 on who God is and what he has done for us. Then we have the do part. Verse 15, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. This is what they were called to do. They were called to stand firm, to hold fast to the things that they were taught. Paul here, obviously sp speaking of the spoken word and, and the letter, he's talking about the apostolic tradition, right? He's talking about... Um, what they had, what Paul and his companions had come and had taught to the people in Thessalonica there to, to stand firm and to hold fast to those things. 
Now we can't miss here the force of the contrasting realities in chapter 2, 10 through 12, and then 13 through 17. There are only two different ways that we can live, and there are only two different destinies. We are either an adversary of God and opposed to his kingdom and his reign, or we are reconciled to God and we are adversaries to Satan and the kingdom of darkness. So opposition is inevitable. Look, you cannot root for the Packers and the Bears. I'm sorry, Andrew Molesky. You either choose light or you choose darkness. And once you've seen the light, there is no turning back. But seriously, things like sports rivalries and political rivalries, rivalries they simply serve to highlight the greater reality. Look again at verse 15. How would we translate that into our love for a sports team? It says, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm. Even when your team stinks. If you know any Cubs fans, 108 years without a championship until the drought finally ended in 2016. Can you imagine being a fan? I mean, nobody was alive for that whole time, but can you imagine like living your entire life and your team is just never wins a championship, never makes it to the World Series. And they're some of the most loyal fans in all sports. It's truly incredible. Packers fans who lived through the 70s and 80s. See Peter shaking his head? Yep. You know what it's like to, after being on the mountaintop, right, winning a whole bunch of championships and then just tanking and being the laughing stock of the entire league. Stand firm. Stand firm when things around you don't look like they're going the way they ought to go. And then hold fast to the traditions. You know the history. You know the players. You know the stories. You read the biographies. You visit the shrine, right? You go to Lambeau Field. You go to the Packers Hall of Fame. You tell other people about your favorite team and why you love them so much. You participate weekly during the season by watching the games. Do you see where I'm going with this? How much more ought we who have been chosen and called and saved by God and sanctified by his spirit and have been comforted and established, how much more ought we to stand firm and to hold fast to the truths that have been passed down to us? Because you can be certain that the world is opposed to you if you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of darkness is led by an enemy who seeks to steal and kill and destroy those who belong to Jesus. And we cannot be unaware of his schemes. Now, I'd be remiss here if I did not draw our attention to another great passage about standing firm. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul describes what it looks like to engage in warfare against the kingdom of darkness. You can turn back there just about. It's about 10 pages back. It's on 979 in the Pew Bibles. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Pay attention here to the language that is, is similar to the call to stand firm and to hold fast that we just saw and the adversarial language. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Notice the defensive and the offensive elements here. The defensive elements are seen in verses 11 through 17 with this armor that is put on specifically beginning verse 13 um, put on the whole armor of god put on the the belt of truth the breastplate of righteousness shoes for your feet the sword or the the shield of faith so these are these are defensive elements that guard us against the attacks of the enemy but then very importantly we need to see there are also offensive elements we see that beginning in verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this is what we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, what the Thessalonians were taught by Paul. They were taught God's word, right? These are the things that we need to take up. We need to hold fast to these things. That is, so the, the sword is one of the offensive weapons. The other offensive weapon is prayer. He tells them to pray at all times, beginning in verse 18. He's praying that he and his companions would be able to have a bold proclamation of the gospel. Now, if we go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see that Paul also asks for prayer. And it's a similar prayer. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be glorified as happened among you. He prays that the word of the Lord, he says here, may speed ahead and be honored. We could actually literally translate this, that the word of God would run and be crowned with glory. So there's this language of, of competition, right? And again, it brings to our minds this language of, or this idea of opposition. If there's a race, if there's something that someone to be crowned with glory, it means that there's, there's something going on. There's a conflict going on. There's, there's a king who needs to be crowned. So he's praying that the word of God would run ahead and be crowned with glory. So there is work to do because there is a battle that we are in. And Paul goes on in verses 2 to 3 to highlight the opposition that we face and then the faithfulness of God. And he, so he prays here in verse 2, or he asks for prayer in verse 2, that Paul and his companions, that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. So again, there's this clear opposition element there are those who do not have faith who are opposed evil and wicked men who are opposed to paul who are opposed to the gospel going forth but verse three 
The Lord is faithful. These wicked and evil men are not faithful. They don't have faith. But don't lose heart, Christian, right? Don't lose heart in the midst of that opposition, in the midst of that battle, because God is faithful. Your God is faithful, the one who calls you, the one who chose you. He is faithful to do what he said he will do. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. I love that. So it's not just the, the human element, right? As we saw in Ephesians chapter 6, there's this, there's this spiritual war going on. And Paul says here that God will establish you and guard you against the evil one. At verse 4 here, he says that they have confidence that the Thessalonians are doing and will do the things that they command. Uh, next week, James is going to get into that. Uh, Paul talks about the things that they command, kind of going through the rest of chapter 3 here. But I want us to notice uh, the interconnectivity here between Paul and those called to lead in the church and those in the church. Church members are to pray for their leaders. Brothers and sisters, James and I as your pastors and Jesse and Chris as your ruling elders who are called to shepherd alongside of us, we need your prayers. We need your prayers that we would stand strong in the midst of these attacks, whether it's from people or whether it's from the evil one. Now, it doesn't mean that you guys don't also face those, right? You do, but there's probably a more specific and concentrated back on the target of those who have been called to lead God's church. And that's not saying like we're in some special class and we deserve some type of special treatment, but there is a, a unique target from the enemy and we need your prayers that God would protect us and that God would use us for his glory But you also must understand that this is a reciprocal relationship. We should pause here and seek to understand what Paul is saying when he says to the Thessalonians that they are doing what Paul and his com companions commanded. And he's referring here both to their upholding of the written word of God that would have been available to them and to the apostolic teaching about Jesus. As we'll see Later in the rest of this chapter, Paul, as an apostle, he can command them to walk in the ways of the Lord, to walk in a manner that is consistent with what God has already revealed in his word. It's not here as if Paul is making up some whole new kind of idea of what it means to be a Christian. He's relying on the revealed word of God. And when we today, as your leaders, when we command you to do things, it's not us making up some type of rules and saying, that you should obey us, right? Like any sign of like a cult or something that's like run as far as you can is when you have leaders who are like making things up and saying like, oh, you need to follow me and you need to obey me and you need to do what I said. No, no. When Paul is talking about commanding them here, it's he's commanding them by the word of God, by the apostolic tradition, right? With the authority that he had from God to do that. He's not just making things up like, oh, you know, hey, come and give me your money and come and do like, do these, come buy me a car, do these things for me or buy me a chariot or whatever, right? Like Paul's not trying to gain. He's not trying to, he's not trying to get something out of this. He's, he's commanding them to do the things that God has told them to do. So again, for us, that's, that's us teaching and preaching God's word to you. It's exercising church discipline in a way that God has called us to do. We talked about this in our Hebrews series at the very end of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Again, there is this reciprocal relationship, right, between those who are called to lead God's church and God's people. You are to pray for us, and we pray for you, right? And, and you are to do the things that we encourage you and exhort you to do that has been revealed in God's word, right? It's not us, like, trying to control your lives and command you. We're saying, this is what God has revealed. So when we stand up here and say, to do something, it's not because I think you should do something, right? I don't, I don't tell you who to vote for. I don't tell you where to go out to dinner. I don't do all of these things that you can make your own choices. But if it's something that's revealed in God's word, we can stand up here and say, this is what God tells us to do as believers, right? So there's this mutual relationship with how God's word goes forward, uh, not just because leaders are doing the work, but because those in the church walk with God and they live lives that are pleasing to him. Now, verse five here, we see another benediction that is similar to chapter two, 16 and 17. It says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. God loves us and God keeps us. Christ, our savior himself keeps us. We are secure in Jesus, our good shepherd, who himself faced unspeakable opposition. In Matthew chapter 12, after Jesus healed a man with a withered hand, the Pharisees sought to destroy him. And Matthew tells us that Jesus was aware of their schemes, so he went away and he began healing more people. He withdrew and and went away. He healed more people. And then Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 42 about the servant of the Lord, God's chosen and beloved one in whom he is well pleased who is filled with his spirit and who proclaims justice to the nations. And then we are told that he will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. I don't know where you're at today, uh, but if you're anything like I was going into my sabbatical, feeling bruised and feeling like my candle was barely flickering, then you need this reminder of God's love and his comfort for you in Christ. I don't know what it might be in your life, whether it's financial stress, relational stress, maybe your relationship with God isn't where it needs to be, and you feel like you're bruised, you feel like your your candle is, is just barely flickering. You need this encouragement that Jesus will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. You need this reminder individually, but we also need this reminder corporately as a church, as we think about opposition. Well, in 1630, Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. I read this book uh, on sabbatical, and it was very encouraging. It's based on the passage in Isaiah 42, obviously, and and Jesus' fulfillment of it. Uh, The book is I think worth the read just for the final chapter. Uh, Some of the, some of the middle was a little slow going, um, and it, it, was, it was good overall. But the last chapter uh, is worth it, I think, to, to read the entire book. Or if you just want to read the last chapter, that's fine, too. Um, you can find it. You can find a PDF version online. But the, the last chapter is titled, Through Conflict to Victory. And Sibs argues here that opposition to Christ and his kingdom are inevitable, but that our victory in Christ is certain. Again, it's the same things that Paul is saying here in 2 Thessalonians in the the entire letter, really, but specifically in this section. Listen to how Sibs describes the church in his day. 
This is almost 400 years ago. Listen to this and be comforted, Christian, that we are loved by our Father and we are comforted and preserved by our precious Savior. The heading of this section is Christ is the hope of the church. He says, if we look to the present state of the church of Christ, remember, he's writing in 1630. It is as Daniel in the midst of lions, as a lily amongst thorns, as a ship not only tossed, but almost covered with waves. It is so low that the enemies think they have buried Christ with respect to his gospel in the grave. And there they think to keep him from rising. But as Christ rose in his person, so he will roll away all stones and rise again in his church. How little support has the church and cause of Christ at this day? How strong a conspiracy is against it? The spirit of Antichrist is now lifted up and marches furiously. Things seem to hang on a small and invisible thread. But our comfort is that Christ lives and reigns and stands on Mount Zion in defense of those who stand for him. And when states and kingdoms shall dash one against another, Christ will have care of his own children and cause, seeing there is nothing else in the world that he much esteems. At this very time, the delivery of his church and the ruin of his enemies are in progress. We see nothing in motion till Christ has done his work, and then we shall see that the Lord reigns. Brothers and sisters, let us stand firm. Let us hold fast. Let us pray, knowing, believing, and doing what God has called us to do as we joyfully await for the return of our Savior. Let us pray. God, just as we read this great Puritan pastor 400 years ago describing the state of the church in his day as, as Daniel in the lion's den, as, as a ship being tossed and, and about to sink. God, as we look at the state of things today, we realize that not much has changed. God, the world is still opposed to Christ and his kingdom still opposed to your reign, still opposed to your church. And God, we, your people, desire to be a part of, of that opposition in a sense of we are going out, we are proclaiming the truth, we are putting on the armor of God, we are taking up the sword of the Spirit, we are praying in faith, God, that you would move, that you would come against the opposition, God, that you would Take those who are opposed to Christ and the gospel, God, that you would give them new hearts, you would conquer them, you would bring them to saving faith. God, we ask that your church here locally, Livingstone Church, the other churches in Oshkosh who are faithful to proclaim the gospel, God, the churches in this nation and, and your bride throughout the world, God, that we would stand firm in the midst of the opposition, that we would hold fast to what we have been taught, what has been revealed to us. We ask, Lord, that you would work in mighty ways to bring many to a saving knowledge of Christ. We thank you that at the cross, Jesus defeated 
Satan and sin and death. And that that already reality needs to propel us as we wait for the, the not yet hope of his final return. So God help us in the meantime to stand firm, to hold fast, to walk with you, to pray, to be a people who bring honor and glory to your name as we seek to magnify you in the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.